Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Selections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to The Down Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. The political news is moving fast here the last week of September, so what are we going to cover? In Pennsylvania, in the governor's race, Republican Doug Mastriano's campaign is exploding in spectacular fashion. We also want to talk about the ad spending wars, where Democrats are doing a much better job of actually getting their spots before viewers, even when they're getting outspent by Republicans. We're also going to give you an update on Republican J.R. Majewski and his stolen valor scandal in Ohio. And finally, there are the dispiriting results of the Italian general election, which saw the far right gain its first victory since World War II. After that, we are talking with G. Elliott Morris, data journalist for The Economist and author of the new book, Strength in Numbers an exploration of the history of polling and why it matters. So many interesting things to discuss, so let's get rolling. So next week, I will be ticking off from the down ballot for Yom Kippur. We have a great guest host who's going to be joining David Beard next week, Joe Sudbay. You are going to love him. Of course, what do Jews do on Yom Kippur? Well, we spend the day fasting. Now, if you are not Jewish, but you still want to get in on the fasting action, believe it or not, I have a solution for you. You can join forces with Doug Mastriano, Pennsylvania's Republican nominee for governor. His campaign is going so well that he has called for quote, 40 days of fasting and prayer. Now, believe it or not, Mastriano is not the first Republican candidate we have seen call for fasting. Sam Brownback, believe it or not, did that in 2018 when he was in his last year as governor of Kansas. But this is just hilariously emblematic of what a disastrous situation Mastriano finds himself in. He's been down by double digits in many, many polls. But here is a quote that I just loved. This is from a Republican operative who opposed Mastriano in the primary. He said, we were opposed to Doug's candidacy in the primary because we feared that he would not be able to connect with the independent and moderate Democratic voters that are necessary for Republicans to win in Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, six weeks from the election, I haven't seen anything to suggest we were inaccurate in our assessment. But here's the amazing thing. This dude who gave those quotes, is head of the only super PAC that is actually spending money to help Mastriano beat Democratic State Attorney General Josh Shapiro. This is who his friends are, and even his friends think that he sucks. And the numbers are really, truly remarkable when you look at the airwaves. The Philadelphia Inquirer had a great piece about this race on Wednesday, the one discussing the 40 days of fasting and prayer. And the authors note that on TV and online ads, Shapiro has outspent Mastriano 21.6 million to $6,300. No, I am not leaving off any zeros. Mastriano simply has no money, and what little money he doesn't have, he hasn't even put on the airwaves. That group uh, that's supposedly helping Mastriano but still hates him has spent $5 million, but that is obviously just a small fraction of Shapiro's spending. And also, the Inquirer notes that Shapiro has another $8 million of TV time reserved until Election Day. Mastriano's total is $0. And this huge disparity, not just in the raw dollar numbers, but in terms of who is actually spending a campaign versus a super PAC, 
also has a huge impact on the number of ads that these groups can each run for the same dollar amounts. And Beard, I know you definitely want to talk about that. Yeah, as bad as Mastriano is, we've also got some very bad Republican Senate candidates. And as a result, the GOP independent arms are having to bail these candidates out. Now, overall, to take a broad view of the sort of nine key Senate battleground races, the GOP is spending more money than the Democrats when you include both candidate spending and outside group spending, 106 million to 93 million in the past three weeks. But because of the fact that Democratic money is mostly from candidates with a smaller amount of outside spending, where we've seen, like Shapiro, a lot of our Senate candidates have had really strong fundraising quarters, whereas a number of Republican candidates have been very bad fundraisers, like Mastriano on the Senate side, the GOP is getting much worse ad rates because so much more of their spending is from outside groups. Now, candidates have to be provided the lowest available ad rates whenever they're buying ad time. So that gives them, you know, discounted rates that allow them to let each dollar go further when they're buying ad time. But that's not true for these outside groups who have to pay higher rates. And particularly as election day gets closer and there's less and less ad space available, those rates go up and up and up. And you can find yourself paying three times, four times, even more what a candidate would be paying to get your ads on TV in front of voters. Now to look at a couple specific examples, in Arizona, Senator Mark Kelly, the Democrat, and his allies are outspending Republican Blake Masters 52% to 48%. So that's the amount of money being spent. So it's very close thanks to a good amount of outside GOP spending. But in terms of eyeballs watching ads, Kelly's side has a four to one advantage in what we call gross rating points, which is how many people are actually seeing the ads. And that's because Kelly's dollars go so much further than the outside GOP groups. Masters has only spent $9,000 on ads during most of September, whereas Kelly is the majority of the ad spending on the Democratic side. And there's a similar situation going on in Ohio, where Republicans are managing to actually air more commercials than Democrats in Ohio, but that's because they're spending three times as much money as the Democrats are. Tim Ryan, the Democratic nominee for Senate in Ohio, is almost all of the Democratic spending. He's responsible for 83% of the ads coming from his side, whereas J.D. Vance, the Republican, is responsible for just 8% of the ads. So the vast, vast majority of the ads in Ohio on the Republican side are independent ads, which is why the Senate Leadership Fund, one of those outside groups, has had to commit $28 million to Ohio, which I'm sure they did not have budgeted in January of this year, to bail out Vance because his fundraising has been so poor and Ryan's ad dollars go so far. So it's a major issue. Obviously, the GOP is funded by a bunch of very, very wealthy individuals who like to cut million-dollar checks. So it's not like they're not going to be seeing GOP ads in these key states. But boy, those are some expensive ads people are watching. Speaking of Ohio, we also have to circle back and update an amazing story from last week that got even amazinger. We told you about Republican J.R. Majewski in the Toledo-based 9th Congressional District in Ohio and his appalling stolen valor scandal. That broke a week ago, the following day, the very same afternoon that we released last week's episode. It turned out that the NRCC cut him loose. The GOP's chief campaign arm for House races cut a million dollars, all of its planned advertising for Majewski in his attempt to unseat veteran Democratic Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur. This is a seat that, as we mentioned, the GOP gerrymandered to an extreme, turning it into one that Democrats typically won by about 20 points to one that actually would have given Donald Trump the edge. There's also another angle here that is just really strange and has not been reported on the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the top super PAC affiliated with House GOP leadership, back in April, they announced a huge smorgasbord of fall TV ad reservations in dozens of media markets, including Toledo, where they said they were going to book $700,000 in TV time. 
And we had wondered, well, what happened to this? Is CLF also cutting Majewski loose? Because sometimes the NRCC and CLF are not on the same page. Well, something even weirder than that has happened. It appears that the Congressional Leadership Fund never actually made a reservation in Toledo at all. What happens is these groups announce their reservations and then they go through the actual process of putting this money on the board. And that's a somewhat involved process. You're buying TV time on multiple TV stations and markets all across the country. But when these groups put out these press releases, whether it's the NRCC or CLF or the DCCC and say, we're reserving a million dollars here and a million dollars there, Yes, those reservations can change later, but you actually expect those initial reservations to be made. And it's particularly strange because CLF is so heavily funded. They are by far the most deep-pocketed group on the GOP side, much bigger even than the NRCC. So what's going on? Do they have other fake reservations that they haven't actually followed through on? I would really love to know more on this, and I certainly hope that some enterprising reporters dig into this because this is a strange one. I want to end this this week on a bit of a dispiriting update from Italy. Italy had their general election this past Sunday, and the far right there is expected to take power for the first time since Mussolini and the end of World War II after the far right alliance comfortably won the general election. Giorgia Maloney, the leader of Brothers of Italy, which is a party that can trace its roots back to the neo-fascist movement immediately after World War II, is expected to become the country's first prime minister. Her party won 26% of the vote along with the far-right league, winning 9%, and former prime minister Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia winning 8%. Now, that doesn't add up to 50%. And all told, they won in the low 40s, but due to Italy's mixed system, where some members of parliament are elected proportionally and some members are elected first past the post the way that we do it here, that alliance, which ran candidates together, was able to win the vast majority of the first past the post seats. And that gives them an overall majority in both chambers, despite only winning 43% of the vote. Now, the center-left alliance, which was led by the Democratic Party, sort of the traditional center-left party in Italy, won 26% of the vote. A centrist alliance that was sort of an offshoot of the left alliance won 8%, and the populist five-star movement won 15%. Now, if those parties had all run together sort of against the far right, you know, there's a good chance that the election would have been very close or even that alliance could have won. But due to how the parties ran and due to the system, it was never particularly close in the end. And I'll also note that while the far right did grow its share of the vote by about 7%, there was also a really significant vote shift within the far right groups where both the League and Forza Italia dropped votes versus the last election, while Brothers of Italy shot up and took a ton of votes from those other two parties, which allowed Maloney to finish first and to claim the prime minister's office. That was at least in part because both of those other parties were in coalition governments at different times in the past few years, leaving the Brothers of Italy as really one of the few parties in Italy that was outside of government the entire time where there was all these you know, COVID issues and debt issues and other struggles of the Italian government, and was allowed to play the role of the opposition, which I'm sure had a role in attracting voters to the party when they were sort of clean from the tough decisions that had to be made by the Italian government in recent years. Now, one silver lining is that the far-right alliance did not win a two-thirds majority, so they cannot amend the Italian constitution without a referendum. So that means that there is a bit of a check we've seen in other countries, most notably Hungary, that when the far-right took power and could unilaterally change the constitution, things got very bad very quickly. So there is at least that step. And we've also seen Maloney back off a lot of her previous anti-Euro positions. And she's also strongly backed Ukraine in recent months. So the early expectation is that internationally, she's not looking to to rock the boat as much as she might have. But we can certainly expect big changes within Italy itself. They ran a very strongly you know, anti-immigrant racist campaign, a lot of very strong anti-LGBTQ issues in the Brothers of Italy. So those are things that we can expect this far-right alliance to go after in the upcoming years. 
That does it for our weekly hits. Coming up, we are going to be talking with G. Elliot Morris, a data journalist who you may know from Twitter, who recently published a fascinating new book on polling called Strength in Numbers. We're going to be discussing the history of polling and so much more with him. A lot of great stuff in store. Check it out. Joining us now is G. Elliot Morris, who is a data journalist for The Economist and the author of the new book, Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So tell us about the inspiration for writing your new book, Strength in Numbers, and what you're trying to get across. Well, first, let me acknowledge on the surface, this I, I, I understand the book might sound a little bit crazy, right, to be writing a book right now about the polls after 2016 and 2020, they didn't have the best track record then. I'm both a consumer of polls via my reporting duties at The Economist and an election forecaster. So I also know that those errors are not necessarily unprecedented. So, you know, in the history of the book, there's there's a lot on early polling, which was even worse really than it is now. Um, and, you know, so I'm sitting here and like, early 2020, right as the pandemic launches, basically us into a permanent lockdown at home, which gives me lots of time to write, thinking, well, maybe I'll write this polling book about that, about how we're, you know, the media is full of misconceptions about how accurate polls are, and maybe we just shouldn't trust them as much. So I sit down to write this book about, you know, everything I know about polls and why everything you know is wrong. And as I'm doing that, as I'm sort of reading a lot of this old political science and sort of polling archive literature from the 30s and 40s, I'm realizing there's a much bigger story here. The story about polls is not, hey, these are actually pretty accurate. It's They're actually an incredibly important tool for democracy. And so that's sort of where the book goes. And that was my biggest inspiration for writing it, that Actually, we shouldn't be using this tool only for predicting elections, and we shouldn't be expecting, as I'm sure we'll get into, laser-like predictive accuracy with these polls. We should using them, be using them for something much more important, which is writing about what people want from their government and pushing leaders to do those things. So you alluded to this a moment ago. You talked about the bad polling misses in the early days of polling. And I think probably a lot of folks imagine that polling really started in the first half of the 20th century, but you go back much deeper than that. So how did you trace it back to its earliest roots and what did you find with the early history of polling? Well, we have evidence of unscientific or what we now call straw polls for going stretching back to at least 19 or sorry 1824 that was an election sort of between four democratic republican candidates not necessarily mapping onto any current partisan divides but important because it was still closely watched and around the country you had newspapers partisan newspapers mainly um, getting their editors and journalists to go around and basically ask anyone they could find who they were going to vote for and then they would report it back to the magazine who you typically had a candidate and would say, hey, look at all these people who are going to vote for our candidate that we vote that, that we that we like. And those earliest examples of straw polls uh, are sort of probably not very accurate. The evidence we have of them is like, oh, here's 20 people we talked to in a militia muster in Kentucky or in a Fourth of July parade in Massachusetts. It's not the type of thing we would use today to predict an outcome or to want to measure public opinion. But it is nevertheless the first you know, the first evidence of polling that we have in America. That evidence, by the way, comes from an early pollster for the Franklin Roosevelt administration who unearthed it and later gave it to George Gallup, who cited it in his book. So that's sort of how I come to that information. And straw polls really took off thereafter. I mean, the most famous example of straw polls, obviously, is the Literary Digest poll, which, again, I'm sure we'll talk about. But there's other straw polls, too, or unscientific polls, before the 1936 and Literary Digest fiasco, I mean, they, they were actually pretty accurate in 
earlier elections in the 20th century, 1912, 1920, 1924, had pretty accurate presidential straw polls, at least you know, more accurate than prognosticators at the time or sort of there's betting market legal sort of election betting markets at the time more accurate than than the election betters too. Um, but they're not, you know, they're not scientific. And so that sort of paves the way for a better tool to be introduced sort of later in history. I won't spoil the ending. <laughs> so those early straw polls, were they born out of the same desire that we have when we look at polls today, simply people don't want to wait for the election. They want to get a sense of where things are going. They're hoping to predict the future. I think there's sort of two answers here that come from the literature. The first is this suggestion that there's basically just some innate human desire to try to divine the you know electoral future. And fair enough. I mean, elections are very important, as the listeners of this podcast, I'm sure, will agree. Politics then and now is a very high stakes game for both candidates and people. And so, yeah, you kind of want to anticipate outcomes so you can prepare. Maybe that's mentally, maybe that's resources or what, what have you. Um, but I mean, really, to be totally honest, at the time, lots of these straw polls were conducted um, and, and the really unscientific ones, especially by partisan newspapers. They wanted to be able to say, look how bad all the other candidates are that we don't like. And look, and to prove to you how bad they are, here's our straw poll that says, you know, 20 people are going to vote for the guy we like and only two for the guys that we don't. And that was the sort of motivation for at least lots of the isolated examples of this that we have in history. Now, I'm sure there's lots of straw polls that we don't have evidence for, but at least drawing on the sample, the small end sample that we do have, that is... Def that definitely comes through multiple ways. So you mentioned the 1936 Literary Digest straw poll, and that may or may not be something our listeners are familiar with. So why don't you walk us through that one and tell us why it's so notorious? Yeah, so the Literary Digest was a news magazine in the early 1900s. It conducted what I think we can probably not get legal and legal trouble for saying this is the largest straw poll ever conducted. And, you know, maybe Athenian direct democracy is a straw poll, whatever, too, at least in the American context. And so they sample roughly 2 million people and ask them how they're going to vote. And the way they come to that sample is by surveying both people who signed up to receive the Literary Digest magazine. And then they also purchase lists of telephone people who own telephones and automobiles and they have their addresses and they'll send them postcards uh, with instructions to tick off the candidate you like, either the Republican Alf Landon or Franklin Roosevelt, the Democrat, and send them back to the Literary Digest headquarters where journalists and sort of proto pollsters sort of research director type employees would tally all of these votes and then the magazine would report them and They'd report them along the way as people were returning their ballots. They'd say, here's what the Literary Digest poll is saying now. And then they'd add ballots later and say, here's an updated Literary Digest poll count. And they did this for quite some time. Like I said, they were pretty accurate in previous elections, but in 1936, they have a bit of a downfall. So their poll, even though they sampled 2 million people, uh, says that Roosevelt is going to lose by... 14 percentage points in the national popular vote, 43% to 57% for Landon, which is probably the biggest polling error ever, given that Roosevelt won by 24 percentage points, making this a 38 percentage point error on margin. And again, it's not scientific, so we can't necessarily judge it by the standards that we judge modern polls, but it is a, uh, but certainly it's a sort of horrendous misfire. And it spells death, basically, for the Literary Digest magazine also, which closed down uh, in the next few years. So with the benefit of hindsight and what we understand now uh, about modern polling and sampling, you mentioned that the Literary Digest obtained lists of owners of automobiles and, in particular, telephones, not necessarily universally owned items in 1936. So it seems like they had a pretty clear sampling problem. Was this something that anyone understood or called out at the time? Or did it just seem to make sense? And it was only later, like I said, with the benefit of hindsight, that that seemed totally borked. Well, 
Right. So George Gallup spots this error first. The pollster we all know as sort of the first scientific pollster in America. At the time, he's getting his public polling firm, the American Institute for Public Opinion, off the ground. He's conducted a few polls nationwide. He like sells basically stories about these polls to magazines who republish them, and he's trying to make a name for himself. So he does spot this error ahead of time. Uh, it's unclear if he comes to this error because of a sampling issue. Um, Gallup actually tries to redo the Literary Digest poll, not by asking 2 million people how they're going to vote, by, but by asking a few thousand people how they're going to vote, both by mail and in person. And he says, you know, not necessarily this is a bad poll because you're sampling telephones and automobiles, but because you're not enforcing demographic quotas in the poll. He says you should have representative numbers of white men and white women and educated men and women and upper class whites uh, and lower class whites. Um, and only then are you going to have a representative poll most of the time. And he also analyzes some of the patterns in their past data, which show a Republican bias. Now, I said earlier that their surveys were accurate. Well, technically, they're accurate if you adjust for this bias, which was pretty predictive. But, you know, they have a pretty stable, like, four or five percentage point overestimation of Republicans most years. And so this is sort of a well, well-known well fact at the time. But aside from the sampling issue, what Gallup also understands is that there's non-response in the Literary Digest poll. And that means it's not only prone to error because they're sampling owners of telephones and automobiles who attend to be, you know, to have more income and to be more prone to voting for Republicans, but also Alf Landon's supporters, he thinks, might be more likely to respond to the poll for, you know, whatever reason. Maybe they just have more time to read the newspaper and to send back mail and to fill out a ballot or what have you. And the political science after the fact says that, that this non-response error is the bigger cause of, loaded, of the literary digest poll. Now, there's probably some sampling bias, too. But uh, if you go, you know, Gallup's polling data from this time is public. You can you can actually look at the interviews. And if you sort of re-weight the data to batch demographically, you still have big problems. You still have too many Republicans answering the poll. Now, I'm sure we'll get here, but this is really important because if the first ever example of scientific polling in American history has a non-response problem by party, you have too many Republicans or Democrats answering it. Well, that, you know, that tees up pretty nicely with the problems we're seeing in polling today and sort of points to a broader, more fundamental issue with polls that I that I try to talk about in the book, which is this non-response or partisan non-response problem. Now, before we get into sort of the misses of the most recent years that a lot of people are very familiar with, I want to I ask you a broader, more conceptual question, which is, what are polls good for? You know, even before the Trump era problems, people never liked the idea of poll tested candidates. You know, more often than not, people seem to get excited by polls and then be disappointed when they don't turn out. We have here in America elections every two years. It's not like we don't have a good understanding of, you know, who people are supporting on a regular basis. So why do we need polls? Well, I think we need polls for two reasons. First, because, you know, a, a world in which we have no polls is not a world where we have no election predictions. It's one where we have bad election predictions. You have prognosticators or pundits telling you who's going to win elections, and that misreads or sort of misrepresents races to readers. It's a, it's a bad read of politics for people. And that's, I think, the electoral, the electoral case for polls. I mean, polling aggregates have better tra track records than election experts who, you know, according to some famous psychological studies are basically monkeys throwing darts and their accuracy of predicting events. So, I mean, that, that is sort of, I think the squirrely, here's the election case for why we need polls still. There's a much more fundamental reason why we need them. And that is because a world in which you don't have polls is one where you don't have, at least in the American context, any idea nationally about what people want from their government. And that's because for you know multiple reasons, presidential elections, for example, are decided by the electoral the electoral college, not the electrical college. That would be interesting. <laughs> so if you're judging what people want by the presidents they elect, you're going to have a really skewed understanding of what they actually want on a policy dimension or how they want to be represented 
sort of in social policy or culturally. Similarly, if you're judging them based on the outputs of the U.S. Congress in the Senate or in the House in some elections, say in 2012, where there's a big mismatch between the popular vote for the House and the members that are elected, you're going to similarly misunderstand the American people. And so polls are really important in this bigger representational sense in how you understand the public. And then finally, they, I mean, they're used by lawmakers. It's, it's not like members of Congress, parties, presidents don't want this information. They, they do want to know what the people want, partly so they can represent them, but also so they can campaign on the most popular parts of their agenda. And maybe that's nefarious, but also maybe it means people are more likely to get what they want. And again, I'm a big political science reader, and there's lots of political science in the book. The political science studies here say, you know, people on average get what they want when you have polling in elections. And uh, there's been a large increase in congruence of policy, basically, you know, over the past half century. A lot of that is because you've increased the pool of you know, members that can vote in this legislature. But I also think that part of that is because you increase the size of the pool of voters that participate in democracy. But I think a lot of it has to be also because you have better signals of what the voters want. Um, and you have direct quotes, say, from members of Congress in the in the 60s saying, we want to do what the people want to do. I mean, we can't, I don't think we can just totally discount that. So if we don't want to throw the polling out with the bathwater, if you will, how do we develop a better relationship with polling? People seem to get so upset about it. Should we just accept that polling is not going to give us what we want, which is the exact right answer to what's going to happen in the next election? Do we need to accept that, you know, if the race is within a single digit margin, the polls just aren't going to tell us that much? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. <laughs> I'm so happy that you have... Um, distilled the book into like two points. Uh, there are a few. <laughs> there are a few points at the end of the book that I that I will give, and they have sp specific recommendations for different types of readers of, of the polls. The first is for journalists, and I think they should listen most to what you've said here. And and that is, you know, there there is a margin of error. There's uncertainty in every single poll, as you say. Uh, but there's also a very long historical track record of multiple polls being subject to the same bias, like we saw in 2012, sorry, 2016 and 2020, actually 2012 also, but in the opposite direction. And what that should mean for political journalists is you should not be expecting laser-like predictive accuracy out of these surveys. After all, you know, they are just estimates of what the people think. And that's and those estimates are the result of uh, a very complex process that is both artful and scientific. Um, so journalists reporting on races should just not expect, bluntly, that a poll in a 49-51 race is going to be telling them much more than guesswork at that point. I mean, it is useful to have that indicator, to know that the race is close, right? But you should not be treating the 51% as this candidate is you know, 90% likely to win or whatever. And so that brings my, into the second group of people for whom I have some recommendations. And that is, if you're the type of person who reads election forecasts, then there's a more specific problem with the polling aggregation models that you need to be aware of. And that is that although basically we've been told that averaging polls gives us a better signal of the race, that's not true, as I said earlier, when you have lots of individual polls subject to the same uniform biases. Um, and so if you're a consumer of election forecasts, my recommendation at the end of the book is not to listen basically to the probabilities of those forecasts, but instead to ask yourself what the forecast would say if polls are as wrong as they were in the past to produce what statisticians called conditional forecasts. And that's on me, a forecaster, to give you the reader. And so we've invested some resources in doing that this year. Uh, but it's also just important, I think, for people to realize wh what we're doing when we're forecasting, when we're averaging polls together, is not like canceling out all of the uncertain possible uncertainty from these processes. We're trying to capture that and distill that into a single number, but more importantly, in a narrative about elections. So that can be helpful for the political reporter who sees like, you know, 59, 40, or sorry, 51, 49 races actually closer to 
a coin flip than than people would think. But more importantly, I, I think people should just treat these surveys as more uncertain. And so the final group, speaking of uns- treating polls more uncertain or with more uncertainty, the final group I have recommendations for in the book is for pollsters, who I think have been pretty misleading, to be frank, about the accuracy of their surveys. If you read reports of polls from the most important pollsters, for example, or the most sort of prestigious pollsters, the Pew Research Center, you know, Monmouth University, the New York Times, they're all reporting margins of sampling error, uncertainty in the poll that is only due to statistical randomness in who they talk to. Now, again, this is kind of technical, so sorry, but that's not the only source of uncertainty in polls. We know polls could also be wrong by, say, phrasing questions incorrectly, or if pollsters aren't making adjustments for the types of groups that are least likely to respond to them, like Trump supporters in 2016 or 2020. Um, And so that this statistical margin of error that they're reporting is actually about half the size of the empirical margin of error for election polling going back to the 1990s. And so the sort of final recommendation for everyone reading surveys is to, as a rough heuristic, take the margin of error that's published by a pollster and double it. And that gives you, I think, a pretty good read of the polls. So there's, so there's a few rules there. Treat them with uncertainty when you're writing about them. Think about uncertainty as about twice as big as a pollster will tell you and pay attention to the forecasts, the rough shape of them, but not sort of the the probability. Don't take that probability as like the oracle on Delphi. It is giving us a pretty rough statistical sense for the race, but it's not, you know, a perfectly calibrated prediction. Can you give us an example of what you were just talking about a moment ago in terms of viewing current polling or polling averages in light of errors in previous cycles? In light of the recent misses, 2016 and 2020 being the biggest, the most notable misfires for the averages, but also, you know, misses like in 2018, you had some pretty big errors in, in Ohio. Um, and in 2012, you also had misses in the opposite direction. My recommendation is sort of to better ground yourself to what the polls are telling you and what they could tell you if you're wrong is to, if you you know can use Microsoft Excel, download the polls from 538, which makes them freely available, and then swing them by whatever percent you think they're biased and see what the election outcome would be in that scenario. I mean, that is what our election forecasts are doing under the hood. We are asking ourselves, or sorry, we're sort of asking the computer to tell us if all the polls are biased by, say, five points towards Democrats, here's what's going. Here's the election outcome. Um, they're, and in this case, it's probably they're going to win 54 seats or whatever. Um, and if they're biased in the other direction, then Democrats in the Senate would win maybe 48 seats or um, whatever that number would be. Now, I don't think that necessarily comes across in our probabilistic predictions. So in, instead, what I like to do is this exercise to swing all the individual polls and add them up and then just tell people, hey, if the polls are as wrong as they were before, here's what's going to happen. And I think this prompts the reaction from readers, from consumers of polls that forecasters are actually trying to get after, uh, which is a sort of anchoring to the uncertainty, the inherent uncertainty to the polls themselves. If I tell you there's a you know 80% chance that Democrats are going to win the Senate, you'll be like, oh, well, hey, that's, that's pretty likely. If I tell you if the polls are even less biased than they were in 2020, Democrats could lose the Senate. I think that gives you a better uncertainty concrete in concrete terms for just how wrong or how right the polls are going to have to be for a certain candidate to win. And so that's why we think it's useful. So talking about those recent polling misses, obviously everyone listening to this podcast understands how the polls in both 2016 and 2020 were definitely too tilted toward Democrats, and so much ink has been spilled on the number one question about those two polling years in particular, and that question is why? And I've certainly read a lot about this. I am certain that you have as well. Do you have any answers that feel satisfying or are there any possible answers that you think maybe are underconsidered, or is it really like that one big study from a collection of political scientists saying 
we really don't know. It could have been any one of a million different things. What are your feelings on this? So in our data, there are a few different explanations that I think, as you as you mentioned, are under-considered. And the big one is that there aren't enough Republicans responding to surveys. But more importantly, surveys or pollsters are talking to the wrong types of Republicans. So in our polling that The Economist does with YouGov, for example, that poll has been balanced by uh, by 2016 presidential vote or in 2020. It had been balanced by that. That means that when YouGov surveyed 1,500 Americans actually every week, it made sure to have the right percentage of white and non-college educated white and black and high income and low income, et cetera, voters. And in addition to that, it made sure that it had the right number of Trump voters and Clinton voters. And yet the poll was still as biased as the average of all the other polls, which mainly, or the vast majority of which are not making these same political adjustments. And so that tells us that the Trump voters we were getting in our poll were, the 2016 Trump voters we were getting in our poll were not sort of 2020 Trumpy enough. And that finding comes through in some other pollsters too, the, um, the New York Times, Nate Cohn's poll is sort of come up with some similar problems. The pollster at Monmouth University, he uses a a sort of similar methodology to to balance the poll by party, also has found that they're just not talking to conservative enough Republicans. And that's the big issue with polling bias in 2016 and 2020. There's a related issue in the way that pollsters predict likely voters. And this is, you know, there's not as much concrete evidence for this, but the problem according to Murray is that in their likely voter model, the sort of statistics they're running behind the scenes before they give you the poll result. Again, another thing that can add to the uncertainty of the poll. They're predicting likely voters based off of, you know, the, the past vote history of a person, uh, of a single person that they're interviewing. And uh, their stated likelihood to vote, and they find there's just lots of error in this model that can lead to larger misfires. Um, and these models are not easy to get right. And so that's why, for example, the Monmouth poll misfires in the 2021 New Jersey election, uh, and also has problems in these years where there's Republican bias and uh, in, in non-response. But other pollsters are also having likely sort of both of these problems happening at the same time. So I think that, I think those are the two biggest considerations that people should sort of think through. There's not enough very Republican people answering surveys. And when we're predicting voters, likely voters in high turnout elections, the models still seem to underestimate turnout among these very Republican voters, in addition to not having enough of them in the sample. So is there any way to fix this twin set of problems? Yeah, there are some steps pollsters can take to try to avoid these issues. But at the end of the day, there's a fundamental problem with polling. And I don't mean there's a like sort of earth shattering issue with all polls and you shouldn't listen to them. I mean, there's a statistical problem that is hard to solve. And that is getting enough people from both parties to respond to your poll. I mean, that is just a hard math problem, basically, and a hard survey design problem. So what pollsters have been doing to try to address this issue is the Pew Research Center, for example, has moved part of their surveying operation to mail surveys, um, which had gone out of vogue, basically, as telephone polls came to prominence in the 70s because they were much cheaper um, and as online polls became more available and predictive or accurate, I should say, in the 2000s and 2010s. Um, but Pew says we can reach these very Republican voters and and very and also conservative religious voters, evangelical voters, um, better by sending them a postcard to fill out their uh, survey online, to go to a website and fill out. You know, each postcard gets a unique link for the person they're trying to talk to, um, to fill out their poll online. And if that person doesn't fill out the poll, the Pew Research Center will send them another piece of mail. And then if they don't answer, they'll eventually by five times send them the questionnaire 
in an envelope for them to fill out by paper and send back. So the so the research the Pew Research Center's solution here is saying we're just going to work really really hard to try to get these people who we think aren't responding to us, and it works. They get response rates close to thirty percent, but it's also insanely expensive. Most pollsters do not have the resources to do polls this way. So the other way you can invest money into fixing the fundamental problem with polls is not in the design phase, the trying to reach people phase, but in the modeling phase, where you say pull people off of the voter file so you know their vote history and voter file companies also have a pretty good predictions for the partisanship um, of, of voters, of registered voters. And you make sure essentially that you send that you give enough phone calls or send enough mail or what have you to predicted Republicans and Democrats. And you make sure to sample this group in proportion to their numbers in the electorate. And that does a pretty good job too. But this was the methodology that Monmouth University used in 2020 and the Times Siena poll used in 2020. And they were still off um, because again, it's really hard to solve this problem if of not conservative of, of not reaching enough conservative Republicans or varied sort of Trumpy Republicans. And, and by the way, I should say I can imagine this error going in the opposite direction. There's no nece- there's not necessarily a reason why conservative Republicans should not be answering phones as much as other people. Very liberal Democrats could easily be doing that too. And it takes a lot of money and sort of statistical power and manpower to solve this issue, which I think really the takeaway here should be that people should trust pollsters who release their methods and like tell you they're putting lots of resources and trying to talk to people a lot more than just the random surveys they see published by, say, a partisan outlet or a campaign or an online, you know, a low quality online pollster or or what have you. So now that we've had this very responsible discussion about the positives and negatives of polling, I'm going to do what all of our listeners want and ask you about the 2022 election. So you recently released a forecasting model with The Economist. What can you tell us about what the polls are showing, what your model is showing, anything that surprised you so far? Well, I'm certainly surprised by how optimistic these models are for the Democrats. And that's partly due to polling data. You know, the the polls are average of the generic ballot poll, for example, the question that asks people who they're going to vote for, sorry, which party they're going to vote for in their congressional district is almost D plus two in our average. So that's pushing the model toward the Democrats quite significantly. Our model also, though, looks at other indicators that are more favorable to Democrats than I thought they would be, you know, maybe four months ago. And that is fundraising data. Democrats are winning a a lot, uh, much higher percentages of contributions from in-state donors than we would have predicted based off of sort of the national environment and past dynamics in each race. Um, And special elections have, as sort of the readers at Daily Cost would know, because we use your data, been very favorable to Democrats as well. Democrats are doing much better than we would have predicted based off of, say, the incumbency in the race or um, uh, the sort of presidential or past legislative lean of those districts. So... Um, you know, on the one hand, like like you're saying, being the responsible consumer of the polls, we should say, well, they can be uncertain. So this D plus two might be like R plus two or R plus four instead, whatever. There's also other indicators that are optimistic. On the Senate side, I'm a, I'm a bit more skeptical, to be honest, of the polling. If you look at a race like Ohio or Pennsylvania, for example, there's currently in polling averages, both ours and 538s, mainly because we sort of rely on the underlying polls that are collected by 538 like everyone else does. Those poll, a, a lot of those polls are partisan polls or polls from low-quality outlets. So I wrote this newsletter article about a week ago about um, how the average quality of a pollster this year is much lower than previous midterms. And that could mean that our models are prone to more error this year. That That's not necessarily something we're going to know ahead of time. What I'm fairly confident in is that the polls are overestimating Democratic support in states like Wisconsin and Ohio, um, where they've misfired relatively recently and where pollsters haven't made all that many changes to their methods. We have been talking with G. Elliott Morris, data journalist for The Economist and author of Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them. 
Elliot, please let our listeners know exactly where they can find all of your work and in particular where they can find the model you were just telling us about. We are not going to rattle off any percentages on the model because by the time someone listens to this episode, of course, they could change, but they should go and click and hit refresh plenty. So tell us all the ways they can find you in your work. So for the model, readers could go to economist.com slash midterms, and you'll be redirected to the right page. And, you know, you can buy my book also at any bookstore near you or read uh, more sort of blog posts and writing about the book at my website, gelliotmorris.com. And where can folks find you on Twitter? At at gelliotmorris. Yes, of course, Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. That's all from us this week. Thanks to G. Elliot Morris for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Kara Zelaya and editor Tim Heinenkel. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Everything is on the line this election. Abortion, climate change, even our democracy. But this election will come down to voter turnout. And if we can do our part to get out the Democratic vote in key races. November 8th will be here before we know it. And people are already voting early. What are you doing to help get out the vote? I'm Paul Hogarth from the Daily Coast Activism Team. I help run our Get Out the Vote activities, recruiting thousands of volunteers into effective action that can get Democrats out to the polls. As of October 1st, more than 40,000 of you have already volunteered, but we need more if we are going to win. We have made a comprehensive list of ways you can get involved to change the outcome of the 2022 election. Whether it's walking precincts, making phone calls, writing texts, sending letters and postcards, or even driving voters to the polls, we have an activity for you, and we need you today. Go to dailycoast.com GOTV, as in get out the vote, That's dailycoast.com slash G-O-T-V and scroll down to find the best campaign and the best activity for you. Don't wake up on November 9th feeling you could have done more. Join us today at dailycoast.com slash G-O-T-V as in get out the vote.